This is what I mean with patience, you know? Crack teeth is so complicated because of that and you're constantly sort of having to defend yourself. You're just constantly digging in front of the patient. This, yeah. this is why I hate crack teeth so much. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello guys and welcome to another episode of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. Today I've got Endo Queen Krina Patel on the show today and we're talking all about cracked teeth, something as you'll hear I absolutely despise in uh, general practice. I think it's the bane of my existence. It's one of the most difficult things to sort of diagnose sometimes and the amount of conversation that's involved with the patient, the amount of sort of discussion and complexities and nuances and possibilities. Your tooth might not be able to, might not even be able to save your tooth. You might have to put a crown on but if then it fails you might end up having to remove it oh you may or may not be better off having an implant the success isn't that good i'm not even sure which truth it is these are sort of things that you sort of end up uh, discussing when it comes to crack teeth so we're going to be discussing things like how far into a canal orifice does a crack need to extend before you look and say you know what this is unrestorable and we're going to discuss about diagnosis of crack tooth which is one of the most challenging aspects of crack teeth and we'll also discuss about how Krina suggests it's managed endodontically and also by us in terms of cusper coverage. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, the episode as well as everything from episode 20 onwards is going to be eventually on dental tubules uh, for enhanced CPD. So thank you for thank you dental tubules for quality assuring my CPD. So if you wanted to get your CPD hours in, then you can go to dental tubules, search protrusive dental podcast, uh, answer a few questions, acknowledge the aims and objectives, and they are you'll have uh, CPD, enhanced CPD for this meeting. We you know with all the outcomes written there, it's all well and proper. So the protrusive dental pearl I have for you is an endodontic one. And it's the one that actually uh, Krina gave me in the middle of the episode, actually. She, she, she told me when we're using a tooth sleuth, which is one of those rigid plasticky thingies that you put on the teeth and you get the patient to bite together and what it does it flexes the tooth to then see if you are uh, confirming the diagnosis of cracked tooth, basically. So that's essentially how you do it. And Krina talks a little bit more about that. When you're using that, one thing that I don't do as much at the moment, I had done it on occasion and I found, oh yes, this helps, but I never really made it a protocol, was to actually, once you get the patient to bite down on the tooth sleuth, you jiggle it a little bit, just jiggle it. Because that sort of jiggling can then sometimes be the difference between being a negative result and a positive result. And that positive result is obviously important in your diagnosis. So uh, the protrusive dental pearl donated by Krina Patel is when you're using a tooth sleuth, make sure you jiggle it. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you're listening to it, then awesome. If you're watching it on YouTube, then even better because there's a, at one stage a photo of a cracked tooth that I show. So if you are listening, then reference back to the video version on YouTube and IGTV to, to look and uh, assess the, that clinical photo of a crack that I will show. Because it's an interesting point that she raises, raises about the width of the crack. So sometimes it's helpful to see the crack. So let's all learn from Krina. Karina, uh, Karina Patel, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. It's, uh, it's great to finally have you on and we're going to talk all things about cracks today. Uh, how are you? Uh, yeah, very good. Thank you so much for having me on. No, it's, a, it's, it's really something that's been a long time coming. And for, to put some context into, right, into this right now, we're in the middle of a COVID-19 lockdown. So if you're listening in the year 2025, that's what's happening right now. Uh, and uh, Krina is going to be giving us some expert uh, knowledge and advice about cracked teeth because this is the time to sort of gain more knowledge and skills so that when we go back into work, we're, we're, we're fully charged and ready to go. So Krina, for those very few people out there in the world of dentistry who don't know who you are, can you please uh, tell them about who you are, what you do, but I'm going to give you a little introduction in the sense that you are one of the most proactive, most approachable, friendly and giving endodontists I've ever met. So now over to you. Oh. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you, Jazz. Um, yes, yeah, so I, uh, uh, I graduated from Manchester 2010, um, following a couple of years in um, general practice doing DF2. I then uh, moved on and did my specialist training um, at King's College London, um, and I graduated from there in 2016. Um, so since then, I've been working mainly in specialist practice. Um, so I work um, based over in Croydon um, and in Reading. 
And I also teach one day a week um, on the MKIN Dent um, Specialist Programme for King's College London as well. Um, so it's quite nice having a little bit of variation um, in my week, which is which is always nice. Uh, it's also quite nice um, giving something back, so being able to do a little bit of teaching, uh, whether that's lecturing or working at King's, um, just keeps you nice and fresh and um, motivated. I can see that you enjoy the education part of it from you know based on what I see on your Instagram, and I think you're something. I, I can sense something you enjoy. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I think when everyone starts, endo is never the thing that you know people love um but with practice i think endo can be really fulfilling there's so many different aspects to it um i feel like every case i treat i i find something different or i learn something different um and endo has as well as um being obviously quite a restorative specialty there's quite a lot of surgery involved in it as well so it's got quite mm -hmm. a good variation um and the surgery is you know fairly complex surgery um so i i, I just think there's there's a there's things in there that mean that you'll never get bored. So yeah, too, too quick speciality, too... highly encourage people to, to think about it. Brilliant. Well, the two things I want to ask you before we talk about the main theme of crack teeth and, and the two things uh, is, is one, what percentage of your practice uh, is surgery at the moment? Uh, and the second one is how big of an impact has CBCT made in the last five years in your daily practice? Um, so not, not a very large percentage of surgery, actually. Um, I'd love to do more. Um, it's just when you, um, when you learn about doing endosurgery, you realize case selection is so important and the majority of cases can be treated non-surgically. So, um, as long as they're, they're treated well, quite a, quite a significant portion heal, um, with root canal treatment or root canal retreatment. So most of my um, week is is doing that I'd say about five percent is is surgery um, I do a little bit more at my teaching um, job where I supervise surgeries for the postgrads um, so that keeps me quite involved in it um, but yeah I mean I wish I would do more but it's just that you know most things heal without without surgery which is a good thing mm -hmm, for the patient mm -hmm, I guess <laughs> mm -hmm. and then how about CBCT um, yeah, I mean, CBCT has had a massive impact. Um, it's almost like a, a whole lecture. There's so many applications to CBCT in endodontics, um, from you know whether it's diagnosing um, periapical lesions, because um, quite often on radiographs they're 2D X-rays. So you know sometimes for patients with difficult you know signs and symptoms, we can't really diagnose properly. A CBCT game changing because you suddenly see um, where the problem is um, because we we see significantly more periapical lesions on on um, CBCT than um, periapical radiographs. Also things like um, resorption um, so things like internal resorptions external resorptions it's allowed you know it allows us to plan these cases um, without you know going in surgically or doing any invasive treatment um, we can instantly see what we're looking at so um, it's game-changing for that um, even things like endosurgery um, it's fantastic we can plan the treatment um, we can see the proximity of lesions to um, the sinus mental nerve id nerve so it allows us to do more complex treatment you know surgeries on lower molars which we probably you know mm. wouldn't have taken the risk to do before um yeah. trauma it's fantastic for trauma so so many applications for it for mm -hmm. um, cbct in endo um so we've, well, we've actually just bought one for our coiden practice um you have to be a little bit more careful when choosing um cone beams for endodontics because you need a much sharper image compared mm. to for implant surgery um, because we're looking at obviously tiny canals and you need to see that sort of detail so it's a little bit more difficult to, to pick a scanner when it comes to endo um, yeah we, we do have practice. a in, in the richmond practice there is a, a very good cbct scanner with an endo mode and i think that's what you know it's just higher detail uh, in that area for when you need it so it is different uh, so on the topic i mean i've got a, a list of questions i want to ask you about crack teeth but now on the cuff of uh, crack teeth um, and cbct you know when you take a, a pa and we all do this we, we take a pa and we show the patient and we suspect crack tooth and when the first thing we say to the patient is like well i need this x-ray but i'm not expecting to see the crack on this x-ray and we all say that um where do you do you see cracks on cbcts um, it depends on the size of the crack. So there's been quite a lot of research that, that came out on this. And the initial research said, we can see cracks. Um, but what they were doing with that research is they were making the cracks a little bit wider than what we would, you know, something that we would see in the mouth, for example, mm. um, that we wouldn't need a cone beam for. So initially, a lot of the studies said, you know, cone beams very useful for diagnosing cracks. Then the later studies were making very hairline cracks in teeth and then looking at that. Um, and what we found is actually on cone beam, we don't see um, cracks at all, um, very mm -hmm. fine cracks, that is, on um, on a cone beam. In fact, it, because cone beam has a smaller resolution than um, periapical radiographs, we're less likely to see it on a CBD 
ECT compared to a radiograph, for example. All right. Um, the thing that we do see, though, is we quite often see the bone loss associated with a crack. So if we have a vertical root fracture, you know, quite often clinically, we get a localized deep pocket associated mm -hmm. with that. Um, and that would be, you know, there'd be bone loss associated with that. And those fine details we see a lot better on a cone beam. So the associated signs um, are there, but not, not, not the crack. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that if you can see a crack on the CBCT, that tooth is probably for the bin. Yeah, fine. <laughs> that's, fine. that's exactly fine. right. Fine. So the reason why I chose uh, crack teeth is that uh, although I love clinical dentistry, I hate crack teeth with a passion. Yeah. I hate dealing with it uh, because it's just there's so many challenges and variables. So the way I, I, I say it is if there's a, a cavity in a tooth that's just caries uh, with no associated crack, there is a degree of predictability in the sense that when you're communicating with the patient, you can be a bit more definitive that, okay, there's a low chance or medium chance, depending on symptoms, stuff, whether you may end up needing root canal treatment. But when it comes to a crack tooth, there's so much explanation and it's like a flow chart you have to explain. Well, if you then end up having pain, then we can hope you do root canal. But if the crack is too big, then we can't save it. We'll only really know at this point. So I find it's just a nightmare in that sense. So that's why I wanted to speak about and it. And we're so, seeing uh, it so much more. I don't know about, I mean, I, I feel like I'm treating one or two cases a week, um, mm -hmm. which never used to be the case a couple of years ago. You know, it's definitely getting more and more, um, probably because people are more stressed, you know? I mean, I've got a crack in my tooth and <laughs> don't know, it's probably from all those exams that um, I've sat, but um, are, are you yeah, parafunctional? I, have you, do you have a history of parafunction? Too okay. much. I clench. Um, so yeah. I, I don't tend to night grind. I think I used mm -hmm. to, but I, I definitely clench a lot. And, and um, my, yeah, my lower seven's got a crack in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you my list of questions. So when I have, I have my phone out, please don't think I'm texting someone. I'm actually looking at my <laughs> questions. Okay. So yeah. if a patient comes in, how do you manage your situations where pain is difficult to localize and you're in a diagnostic dilemma and you suspect a crack? Um, what What is the sort of your standard protocol of, okay, I suspect crack tooth. I don't exactly know which tooth, because sometimes you just can't see which tooth it could be. So yeah. talk us through uh, how you'd manage that. Well, I think just starting from the basics, because I, I find that um, really helps a good history um, before we actually start the exam. Um, so I run through um, Socrates. Um, so sight, you know, where they think it's coming from. Um, and there's been studies that have shown that you know, patients that think it's coming from a certain tooth, quite likely it's coming from that. So, I mean, I think, you know, having a good conversation quite often with these cases, the patient isn't sure. They're like, it could be this one. It could be this one. I think it's more likely this one. Um, so I think that is very important, actually, just get, you know, right from the onset. Um, the second is the onset. So when it started, because sometimes patients, they present to you with irreversible pulpitis and, you know, it's very severe pain. Um, but if you ask them the history, then, you know, they, they might have said, you know, I had pain on biting from around this tooth for about a year or after that restoration was done, um, it, it's never felt right and, and now I've got severe pain. So I think it, that really helps. And quite often mm -hmm. you find with patients, they're not willing to divulge that information. They just say, I've got severe pain and then you get on with it. But I think the history is actually very important. Um, even the radiation. So, you know, if they've got, for example, ear pain associated with it, we're now thinking lower molars potentially. Mm -hmm. um, if they've got pain in their eye, you know, canines, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, even um, ex ex uh, things that, that are stimulating the pain, so hot and cold, um, because those things will help me um, during my clinical examination. So when it comes to a patient and their exam, um, I start from all the basics. So what's tender to percussion, starting from the adjacent teeth, which aren't tender. Um, if, you know, if there's two teeth which are both tender to percussion, um, then again, I'll, I'll, I'll try and look for cracks. Mm -hmm. um, magnification is really important. So I think with cracks, you do have to be using loops um, mm -hmm. and a light if you can. Um, ideally, a microscope is, is lovely to have, but I think loops and a light, you see, you know, a lot more than just with, you know, normal vision. What's the minimum level of magnification you think uh, uh, someone should be using for exploring a crack. Do you have an opinion on that? Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you 
even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We work so hard on this protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Yeah, I mean, I if I think if you've got loops, it, it would be five times magnification because it's very difficult to see where the crack extends without without that sort of magnification mm-hmm. um, because you might think it's a lot more coronal than it actually is because they go very hairline um, as, as they travel down the tooth. So mm-hmm. I think five times is the absolute minimum when you're trying the, to... The advice I give to... The advice I give to lots of young dentist students and stuff coming out and they're buying their first pair of loops is just skip the 2.5 and 3, go straight to the 5 because, yeah. you know, I went 5 and I now want 8 or something, you know, or so uh, on Fridays where I get to use a scope, I'm like, oh, this is so much better. So, um, you know, that's one yeah. side thing I just want to say. The more magnification, the better with good lighting as well, as you said. Yeah, harder to get used to in the first instance, but within two Big weeks, time. I think you're there, you know. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. Um, also the bite test, um, so using tooth, a tooth sleuth, um, so testing individual casps. When they get, when I, when they bite down on the tooth sleuth on an individual casp, I tend to jiggle the end of the tooth sleuth, um, because that mm-hmm. sort of gives lateral pressure on the casps. And I find that very useful. Um, can I we also, just talk about the um, tooth sleuth sensitive- actually? Um, because people actually use it without knowing the proper way to use it. So the, the you know, the curve, mm-hmm. the spoony side and whatnot. And I also want to answer the, this for me, which is. Is there any evidence to suggest that the using an actual rigid tooth sleuth is superior to what a lot of GDPs use is uh, cotton wool? Yeah, I think the problem with cotton wool is um, you, you don't get the same sensation as when you use a tooth sleuth. So a tooth sleuth tends to separate the tooth a little bit better because mm-hmm. the, so as you mentioned with the, the tooth sleuth, you have one end which has got a little cup on it. Um, that's meant to sit directly on each of the cusps individually. So you test one at a time. Um, so you put the, the cup end on the cusp tip, get them to bite down um, on the flat end, um, and then you jiggle the end of it. And what that does is it puts lateral pressure on each of the cusps individually, which I think cotton wool just really can't do. So um, I think that, you know, tooth sleuths aren't very expensive, but they they total game changers when it comes to diagnosis. So I definitely it's recommend- It's a good tip you give there of, of jiggling it. I think that's something that um, is, is something I don't always do. So I think that's a, a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people will feel it instantly, but some people it's the jiggle that, that does it. So it's it's a good idea. Um, I also find sensibility testing really good. So mm-hmm. the other thing that, I mean, I, all these things are mistakes that I've made in during undergraduate. I never got taught how to use a tooth sleuth. With sensibility testing, it was always ethyl chloride. Um, and the Not problem good enough. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. So teeth, I mean, ethyl chloride is about minus five degrees, um, whereas if you're using something like endo frost it's minus 50 um so you were much like you know much more likely to get a good response um with something with something a lot colder so um endofrost is the first thing i pick up mm-hmm. there are some cases you know how you mentioned it's very difficult to diagnose um where the, where the pain's coming from and um a good tip that i've learned recently is i, I tend to use um hot test so you know you you're taught at uni to do get some warm gp and put it on the tooth but that doesn't work very well at all so what i tend to do is um I'll get my nurse to boil the kettle um, and then I will put the warm water in an endo syringe. Um, mm-hmm. Not boiling hot, obviously, but just warm, fairly warm. Um, and I, then I will individually isolate each of the teeth on, on that quadrant with um, rubber dam and put the put the hot water um, on it. And you know what? The patients that tell you they've got hot pain, instantly you'll know which tooth it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're the ones, you know, with irreversible pulpitis, they find it very difficult to differentiate which tooth it's coming from. It's quite a little bit painful for them. Obviously, you need to tell 
yeah. tell them it's not very nice in terms of doing it um but i get the nurse ready with the suction so she can suck up the water as soon as as soon as it's done but i find that mm -hmm. test really useful i've had a couple of patients referred to me recently that the dentist hasn't been able to diagnose which tooth it's coming from and the only the only way that i manage to is is do it with that test so that's a really I good tip so anyone listening well. use the the pot water in a syringe isolate each tooth with rubber dam uh and you know that might figure out which tooth it is uh i have a story whereby i was dealing with a patient who ultimately ended up having cracked tooth but the symptoms were severe pain irreversible papitis type apical periodontitis and we're trying to figure out is it from the top is it from the lower uh, and um, an upper right first molar was very ttp uh, and we both agreed that okay it could be this one but i wasn't 100 convinced but he literally begged me to remove the upper right molar uh, and, and and literally in my notes patient begged me to remove uh, upper molar <laughs> i was like look i'm not 100 sure it could be a lower tooth as well anyway took the tooth out patient said thank you anyway comes in next day obviously he's not out of pain yet it was a bottom tooth uh, and when i look at you know Aww. get my get my loops on again and look actually you can see this microchip on the marginal ridge uh, of a lower molar and then actually that's where it was it was a crack tooth anyway and end up removing that tooth and i could visualize the crack beautifully anyway the patient was very understanding because he literally begged me to remove that tooth but you know we've all made a lot of us have made mistakes like that uh so this is why it's so important to make sure you get it right yeah, I mean, I think you highlight a very important point, though, that, I mean, your consent process was exactly right, you know, you, with these sorts of teeth, even if I am pretty sure it's it's that tooth, with cracked teeth, when it, when they're in that sort of state, irreversible pulpitis, patient struggling to identify what tooth it's coming from, I think it's always important to, you know, say to them, look, I, you know, I'll normally say I'm 80% I'm sure or I'm 90% sure it's coming from this one. However, your symptoms aren't, you know, 100%. Um, we've got a couple of options. You either the weight and let it localize more which you know sometimes some patients will say okay do that and you warn them the negatives of doing that is that you can end up with an unrestorable tooth because it can end up completely fracturing um or you know we treat this with you understanding that you know it could be another tooth which is exactly you know how you handled it and i think you know having that discussion with the patient is just really important because um you know we can't be 100 percent sure all the time mm -hmm. especially with these sorts of teeth I think it's important for the patient to sense that actually one, it's, it's, it's totally okay not to be sure and to be straight yeah. with the patient rather than, oh, I think we'll remove this one. And then when you're wrong, uh, everything happens. But <laughs> I like the way, you know, I think is this percentage sure, what do you want to do? Uh, then the patient yeah. could take some ownership as well of that. So that was just That's my it. little story. So now you mentioned about the actual diagnosis being pulpitis, necrotic, that sort of stuff. So can you tell us about the cracked teeth with associated what's happening with the pulp because that's essentially what it's all about you know you can have a, a cracked tooth you can have a cracked tooth and, and you know, correct me if i'm wrong you can have a cracked tooth with no pulpitis at all and that tooth just needs cuspal coverage for example uh whereas a, a cracked tooth with the whole sequelae so tell us a little bit about the sort of different types of diagnoses you can have with a cracked tooth so um, cracked tooth syndrome means that the tooth is vital. Um, so that's not a diagnosis for a necrotic pulp. Um, so you have cracked tooth syndrome with a um, reversible pulpitis. Um, and for that, obviously, patients have got maybe pain on biting, no constant ache, pain that doesn't last more than a couple of seconds, all the normal things. And then you've got um, cracked tooth syndrome with irreversible pulpitis. Um, and for reversible pulpitis, um, I tend to tell the patient, you know, um, I, there's a couple of ways of managing this. One is, you know, we could do a root canal treatment if, you know, that would be, we take the pulp out and, and you know, it solves your, solves your problem as in terms of your symptoms, or we could handle it more conservatively and just put a cuspal coverage restoration on it. And, you know, most patients will say that's what they want because every patient wants the most conservative treatment um, possible. And there's quite good evidence for this. Um, so there's two studies, um, one by um, Signoritel in 2007, um, and I think he treated about 43 teeth um, with reversible pulpitis with a crack that was diagnosed, um, and he put a direct um, composite onlay on them. And I think mm -hmm. about 96% or 95% were asymptomatic at six years, which is a fantastic result That's for a patient. Good. You know, they've got reversible pulpitis, they have an onlay on it, um, and everything, you know, everything gets fixed for them. Um, mm -hmm. But there was another study done in a similar year um, by uh, Krell and Riviera, um, and they said about 20% of teeth that had cracks and reversible pulpitis um, became symptomatic after a crown was done. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's quite interesting, actually, because the first study did an onlay, composite onlay, quite, you know, technique sensitive. 
Um, and the second study did crowns. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, I think the main difference in the, the results there was mainly because an onlate was done. Um, so I mm-hmm. think for, for teeth with reversible pulpitis and cracked, cracked teeth, we should be placing onlays. Um, we should be hopefully you know doing things like immediate dentine sealing, uh, making sure the temporary onlay we put on there is very good so we're not getting leakage, because um, this all helps preserve the vitality of the, of the pulp. Um, however, you know, if you are doing that, I'll always say to patients, you know, there is always a risk that the tooth can become necrotic or symptomatic. And mm-hmm. in that case, we are going to have to strip this restoration off it, investigate the crack, see if it's restorable. If it is, we're going to put something something else on there. So that conversation is very important because every um, procedure or any crack or caries you know it's all an insult to the pulp so we've got this tooth which has had a little bit of an insult because it's got a crack in it probably a restoration in it and then we're doing another insult by putting this onlay on it um so you know that that's enough to sometimes just tip a tooth with reversible pulpitis over the edge um, mm-hmm. so i think that consent process is very important mm-hmm. well karina if, if money was no object i i would always um in that situation where my diagnosis is cracked tooth syndrome and we have a reversible pulpitis, uh, if money was no object, I would go for an uh, indirect uh, onlay. So be it gold or uh, lithium disilicate, whatever, for example. Uh, However, it's it's not nice when you've had to deal with a cracked tooth with reversible pulpitis and then after your intervention, it becomes irreversible pulpitis or becomes necrotic without the patient realizing and then eventually it's an abscess and then you're drilling through your uh, investment or the patient's investment or the, or the, the cusp of coverage what you've done so sometimes a good interim is like you said a composite direct i, I do a lot of these cuspal yeah. coverage just to see how it's going to go and, and i consent the patient that look after if, after a couple of years if, if all is good i think we really should for longevity reasons yeah then uh, pro- progress to an indirect restoration yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. I think um, a, a, some, some sort of temporary measure is always good. The mm-hmm. only thing I don't like about the direct composite on lays is I feel like the indirect ones um, are a little bit more stronger in the sense oh, yeah. that when they're biting on the tooth, you've got a bit more stability to hold the crack together. Mm-hmm. Um, so so maybe, I mean, a, a short, slightly shorter term, um, yeah. see how it goes, and then, and then put an indirect on there a bit sooner. Mm, completely agree and so something that uh, Jason Smithson taught me he's he's not that big of a fan of uh, composite onlays to be honest with you because he, he shows all these studies where the rigidity of uh, ceramic is is needed to, to to really get that you know cuspal coverage and actually prevent the flexure uh, of yeah. a tooth so uh, the point well taken so I think what we were left off as where I, where I sort of interjected with the story was um, you were talking about now reversal pitus part of the crack tooth yeah. syndrome yeah, so um, so if if the symptoms have gone a bit further and we're on irreversible pulpitis now, I think that's what you mentioned, didn't yep. you? Yeah, so if we're on irreversible pulpitis now, we manage that very similar to if a tooth is necrotic. Um, so those two are managed the same. Um, so what I would do is I would then explore the, uh, uh, explain to the patient um, on the outset that the treatment of these teeth is a lot more unpredictable, um, both in the short term and in the long term. So short term, um, we're going to invest, our treatment plan would be to investigate the crack. Um, so what I would tend to do is, um, if it's irreversible pulpitis, extirpate um, and see how far that crack is going. Um, same if it's necrotic, I would go into it and have a little look. At that point, we've got a lot more information on the extent of the crack. Um, But in the short term, it's unpredictable because, say we do treat these teeth, um, the crack may have extended further than what we can physically see. Um, Mm -hmm. So we stand the best chance of of seeing how far it's extended with a microscope or with high magnification loops. But even with those sort of devices, um, potentially there could be micro cracks that have gone beyond the level that we can see so short-term treatment can be unpredictable um although we try and minimize the unpredictability unpredictability this is what um, i mean with patients again, you know cracked teeth is so complicated because of that and you're constantly sort of having to defend yourself you're just constantly digging in front of the patient this, yeah. this is why i hate cracked teeth so much <laughs> do you know I, the way I, I find it very useful to show them a picture so yes. i've got one folder on my desktop with um crack tooth in it um and i've got these this sort of sequential look at a tooth um all through us throughout me investigating the crack and i mm-hmm. find that patients don't understand what i'm saying until i show them those pictures and when i see them it's like a light goes on in their eye and they're like oh i understand why now you don't know you know how why you can't tell me because 
it, mm-hmm. you know, I can't see where it goes. So you can, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, you can show them the pictures, and I find that very useful. Well, this um, might be a good point for me to sh- show the the people watching right now and you um, yeah. a crack tooth which I opened up uh, due to irreversible pitis and see what it looks like, and then get your what do you see from your lens of the world? C- can we do that? Yeah, okay, of course. Let's yeah. do that. Fine. So share screen. Right, so, so let's make that bigger. So this is a lower right molar. Uh, diagnosis was uh, irreversible pulpitis, raging, lots of toothache. Anyway, opened it up. Yeah. Um, hyperemic uh, pulp, and th- what you what we're looking at here is the distal marginal ridge, the crack extending into pretty much the pulp chamber. Now, if I was to zoom in, I'm. I, I mean, this is very clear where my mouse is now, the the, the sort of higher part, that's very clearly cracked. The bottom, you can still see the crack line. Yeah. So tell me, is this one for the bin or not? Or do you need more information? Um, For me, this is probably one for the bin, not because of the extent of where the crack goes to, because I think that, that you know, it, it's going into slightly into the black area, but it, it looks, it, you know, that, that doesn't bother me as much. What does bother me is the width of the crack at mm. the coronal aspect. So we can see the tooth is pretty much in two parts. You can almost see debris coming in, um, you know, pretty much at the level of the, the CJ. I, I can see that crack is about, you know, Point one or two millimeters wide. Mm. You've got debris in there, so I think that is the reason that crack width is the problem for me. Um, not the extent that it's going to, because for, you know when I look at cracks, as long as it's not crossing the pulp floor or it's extending, you know, very far into the canal orifice, usually mm-hmm. even a millimeter into the canal orifice, I I will treat that sort of tooth if the patient is keen for me to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the width of this crack is what what I think is is unrestorable. Well, that was a, a massive dilemma for me at the time. It was yeah. really umming and ahhing and uh, yeah. the patient. So I, I, ended up did, uh, I ended up doing a root filling for this tooth. But I take your point. I think now if I was look back at it, uh, assessing the width, uh, it's very reasonable to say you shouldn't treat that. I think it's been three years now, touch wood, all is good, but I don't think this will be there in another five years personally. But uh, it's, it's interesting yeah. how you say that. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy your sort of uh, look on it and I learned something there to actually not just assess the, the depth, but also look at the width and you, you see that you can see debris coming in and that's a, a red flag, I think. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there isn't much evidence when it comes to, um, you know, which teeth we should treat and what teeth we shouldn't treat. Um, there, there was actually I was going I was going to do my own study on it because I was treating a lot of these teeth, um, which um, if you look at the previous papers, they were saying that they were unrestorable. You know, before if you look at the evidence, it said that if a crack is going, you know, to the level of the canal orifice, that's for the bin, and that you mm-hmm. know there's very, very you know high risk of failure when it comes to treating cracks. But if I did that, then so many of my patients would lose their tooth, and in my mm-hmm. mouth, I would be treating these. Um, so I, I started treating these sort of more severe cracks about five years ago. I've had great success with it. Um, And there was a paper that came out last year, actually, um, which has has shown very similar um, results. They treated quite extensive cracks. um, So cracks that extended just into the canal orifice, or if there was about five millimeters pocketing, you know, isolated pocketing associated with the cracks. And they had a great success rate. They had about um, 100% survival at two years and 96% Mm -hmm. survival at four years. So Mm -hmm. I think actually, you know, look, as long as they were treated properly, which I'm sure we're going to go on to the management mm-hmm, of these mm-hmm. teeth, but um, as long as they were treated properly, the success rate was very, very good. Um, I think the main thing, I mean, as you treated with that one, it would be just telling the patient actually, you know, I, normally for me, I when I'm treating these cases, I, before I even start, I say, I won't know if I can treat this or not until I open it up and investigate it. Um, once I have opened it up, I can give you a rough percentage of what I think. So, for example, with that tooth, I would have said, you know, 50-50 or 40% or whatever. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I would have given them a percentage at that stage once I'd opened it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most patients are happy with that. And, and it's that percentage that they then decide. I mean, I've treated a dentist a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, obviously he's well informed, he, he, you know, very understands everything. Um, and I said to him, look, I think 50-50 for this. It was a, you know, I could see the crack. There was an isolated five millimeter pocket with the crack line. Um, and I've treated it and it's still in, you know, still in his mouth. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, I think as long as we've properly consented patients um, and spoken to them about the risks, you know, long term, short term, um, we should be treating them.
I think just an interesting observation, I think with all uh, realms of dentistry, the decisions that we make as clinicians. Now, if you're someone who's quite good at placing implants and you come across a 50-50 crack, you're probably going to go towards the implant because, you know, uh, you know, everything, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Or if you have a really good endodontist uh, beside you or if you're really good at endodontics, you probably uh, have a crack at it, excuse the pun. So it's, it's just, just one of those things, isn't it, in, in, in life. So you've answered one of my next questions, which was how far into the orifice, you said about a millimeter, even then, obviously, with look, you know, taking into account all the other factors as well. Uh, um, so if if the crack extends across the pulp floor, for me, mm. that's a definite no no. Sure. Um, if there is an isolated pocket more than about five to six millimeters, for me, that's a no no. Although there have been studies that have shown good success rate with up to seven millimeter pocketing. Wow. Uh, but that pocket indicates that the crack has gone into the root. You know, it's travelled into the root there. So mm -hmm. five mm -hmm. millimeters for me is a cut off. And if I do have any isolated pocket, that's an immediate me telling the patient, look, short term, this is a lot more unpredictable um yeah yeah and crack width is very important mm. so yeah that those are the, the factors that i look at brilliant so the next question is i think you've said answered this already basically about the evidence base uh, for uh, how long root canal treatment can last uh, with patients with cracks uh, do, do, do you want to mention anything else um, well, there was there was also a systematic review that was um, carried out last year. I've got the name here somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, oh, here, Olivia, uh, Oliviera et al. Mm -hmm. It was a systematic review on all the evidence for cracks. Um, and they said that there was an 88% survival at one year and an 82% success rate at um, one year. Um, the main significant factors that they found um, was it wasn't how many cracks the tooth had or the tooth, tooth type or the status of the pulp, so if it was necrotic or irreversible pulpitis, but it was more that if there was a perio pocket associated with it. Wow. Um, so that was the main factor. Um, but it was the Davis and Sharif study that I mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. was the one that I think is is very, very good. Um, the main sort of outcomes of that study um, were that we place um, an intracanal um, barrier. Um, so for example, with teeth that with cracks are so the one that you showed, for example, mm -hmm. what I would do is I would, once I've obturated that tooth, I would put, I normally put composite below the level that I can see the crack extending um, mm -hmm. because we know that GP leaks. Um, it's not a very good uh, material. It's only yep. good for root canal fillings. It's not good at preventing leakage. So mm -hmm. um, one of the main outcomes is for this study was putting a microscope assisted intracanal barrier. Um, so something, okay. you know, far down the canal. Um, and I think that makes a significant difference. Um, the other the other outcome was um, what they said is they took the tooth out of occlusion. Mm -hmm. um, then they recommended a cuspal coverage restoration as soon as possible. Um, so when I treat these teeth, I tend to put a ortho band around the tooth because right. as dentists, you don't know, you know, um, when we're treating difficult cracks, especially the, the bigger ones, you worry that, I mean, I normally put a composite core in the tooth and leave it like that, but the ones that are, are bigger, uh, I find an ortho band really useful. Um, so I just take a very thin slice mesially and distally, um, which is what would, you know, what the, what the dentist would take yeah. when they put a cuspal coverage anyway. Um, and I cement an ortho band with um, GIC. So I pick a band that's um, very going to be very tight fitting um, mm -hmm. and I've got a bite stick for the ortho um, band so that they, they just bite on it, it clips on, and very easy to place. It doesn't take very long. Um, and that just holds that tooth stable until the cuspal coverage restoration is done. Um, because dentists get busy, you know, if they can't, um, if you can't get that patient back in your diary for another month or, or something like that, I think the band is really useful to, to help hold things together. Um, but I think that's, that's another conversation for the patient, you know, before you start it saying mm. that, you know, you're putting a big investment in this tooth, you're going to have a root canal treatment. And then for me, you're going to have a cuspal coverage straight away. Yep. Um, and then we see how it goes, you know, if this doesn't work, then it will have to still come out, you know, mm -hmm. um, and if it does work, it might last you many years, but there is a risk long term, the crack can extend and the tooth may need to come out as well. And it's a hard conversation to have with oh. the patient, you know, because, you know, it's not easy. It does take time, you know, it's um, to, to have that conversation. But I think it's so important because then they suddenly, you know, they understand you're, you and them are in the same boat and you're traveling, you know, this line together. Um, and I find that the reviews, they they come back and they say, you know, Karina, it's still there. It's fine. You know, it's, it's and, I'm, and we both celebrate together, you know, so. Mm -hmm. I I like that. <laughs> it's, un it's undersell over deliver, isn't it? Really, yeah, it's the crux of 
all treatment conversations and consent is that's a very important part of it especially with cracks I mean that's why I hate it so much I, I, I don't like giving patients uh, bad news all the time like well you know it's really dubious and it's just yeah. when, when a cracked tooth is involved I'm always like super pessimistic yeah yeah, me too. I mean, I, I give them the the percentages, the rough percentages, and just then I sort of mm -hmm. stand there. And it's hard to be silent in that time while they decide. Yeah. But I think the main thing is just be silent, let them make the decision. Mm -hmm. A good tip for a young dentist communication wise is that never own the patient's problem. Remember, the crack isn't the patient's tooth, not in your tooth. Uh, so make sure yeah. you dissociate yourself from that problem. The problem is, is out of your body. It's in someone else's uh, mouth and their tooth specifically. So really... Give them as a professional all the information you need to give and let them come up with the decision. Don't own it. Don't get emotionally involved in that uh, <laughs> patient's decision. I used to do that quite a bit, uh, I think. Yeah. So. Do you I'm do very that? guilty of it. Yeah, okay. I'm very guilty of it. I think, um, you know, I'll be thinking sometimes of a tooth that I you know, should have treated or not treated and I'll be thinking about it at night time, you know, and it's it's not a good thing to do. I think the more you practice that conversation and say, you know, you have it a few times and then you get used to saying, okay, look, this yeah. is your tooth. Um, I've had the same problem in my, I mean, I, I normally tell them about my story actually because I was getting pain when eating um, raspberry seeds Mm -hmm. uh, and I would get a short, sharp um, pain when eating. And I, I was convinced it was my six um, and okay. you know, it, it was my seven. I mean, the most uh -huh. common teeth to crack in the mouth are lower sevens first, then upper sixes, then upper mm -hmm. fours and fives. So studies have shown that and it, it was my lower seven. I was very close to getting a cuspal coverage put on my um, number six tooth. Um, mm -hmm. And it was only, you know, a little bit later, I had a raspberry seed and I asked someone, where is it? And it was on my lower seven. Um, so I, I always tell them that story. And uh -huh. I find that patients quite like that. If you tell them a story, you know, something that happened to you, they're like, okay, she understands, you know, that this is this is a problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's a great way to communicate with your patients. So uh, the last question I have, I think, is there any other points you want to raise about uh, the consent conversation? Because um, well, one thing I want to say actually was, when I'm consenting patients for any treatment, not just yeah. root canal and cracks. And I always love to give them percentages according to the evidence. I think that's a very good thing to do uh, medical legally. So for example, if I'm doing a resin bridge, I say, well, the studies show that if they last four years, they'll then go on to last eight year, uh, 10 years uh, and 80% success rate at that point. And I'd like to give them that sort of information. So um, yeah, what do you do in terms of consent? And do you give them like that sort of information that I've just described? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because at this, uh, there isn't much evidence out there apart from this paper that I mentioned to you. Um, so the, the two papers, the Davis and Sharif one and the um, Oliveira. Oliveira one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are the two main papers and they've got very good success rates. And, and um, so I don't like to quote that because mm. obviously it is difficult. So normally what I will say is if it's a very minor crack, I will probably give them about 85%. That's when I start. Um, and if the crack is very extensive, so probably the one that you showed that for me is you know 50 50 something like something like that so mm -hmm. it varies on how how wide it is if there is an nice if there's an isolated pocket it instantly goes down for me to about 75 percent um mm -hmm. but just because these things are unpredictable um and i think it's you know it's a large investment for a patient so it's very important that that you like exactly how you said that you sort of undersell and over deliver um so yeah those are the sort of percentages that i tend to give I take your point. I think uh, maybe you're right. Maybe with endodontics and crack teeth, you don't want to be quoting them as good as figures as in the studies because it sort of goes against the philosophy of undersell over the liver and it's just so variable and unpredictable and, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so the last uh, question. From personal yeah? experience, actually, the, the success rate is over about 90%, I think. Well done. Um, so that's because it's you. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think, I mean, even your patient, the one that you treated, you know, that's a fantastic result that you've got yeah. that patient three years out of is it three years? It, it, three years so, so far. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic result. You know, the patient's kept that, that tooth for three years. Um, and mm -hmm. for me, in my mouth, that's, you know, I'd definitely be going for that sort of option. But I think sometimes for other patients, we, we you know, we're so scared in this litigious world, um, to, you know, to, to, to treat something and then be told off for, for you know, trying your best. Yep. Um, so I, I think it's it, you have to be careful. But at the same time, like, we want to like, do the best for our patients. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're completely right there. We're, we're less inclined to give it a go anymore because of the climate we're in. So uh, the last question I have for you is, is there any evidence perhaps about, well, some people say that when you have a crack, that you should chase the crack until you don't see any crack anymore. Whereas others are like, uh, no, don't chase the crack because the, the theory is that the vibration of your burr is actually causing more micro cracks. And that's the, the camp I'm in, actually. So uh, I follow the principles of someone called Pasquale Venuti, who's a fantastic uh, general dentist in Italy who uh, lectures all over the world. I saw him in Sydney uh, a few years ago and he was talking all about cracks and whatnot and how he doesn't chase cracks. So I changed my practice based on that, but I don't know. Am I doing the right thing by not overzealously chasing cracks? Um, it's difficult to say because, again, there's very little evidence on all, on mm-hmm. all of it. Um, if there is a vital tooth with reversible popitis, then I definitely wouldn't be chasing any any crack. I would be going straight for my cuspal coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find is when I do, I, I don't chase them so that they disappear. But what I mm-hmm. like to do is I quite like to open the tooth so that I can probe um, directly at the level of the, where the crack is. So, for example, if there is a, a proximal contact, we can't probe um, properly incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I will tend to do is I'll open the crack just enough so I've removed the contact so that I can yep. probe um, directly where the edge of that crack is. And I, the reason I do that is I think it does change my percentage of success that I offer the patient because some cracks look you know not too bad. You open that bit, suddenly you've got an eight to nine millimeter pocket at that level, which would significantly change my management. Mm-hmm. Whereas for others, you probe, um, you know, they're a little bit wider initially and you probe and there's no pocket there. And it may be that I would then go and save that tooth. So I don't agree with chasing it to to get rid of the crack by any mm-hmm. means, but I mm-hmm. do like to know. It, for me, it's it impacts on my treatment. So I quite like to open it up just so I can probe that that contact there. That makes perfect sense um, because you're opening, you're, what you're essentially doing is you're opening the contact, which is something that would have happened anyway because that tooth would have uh, been needed a cuspal coverage restoration because that's exactly where the crack is anyway. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's not ideal because if we remove the marginal ridge on a tooth, um, we do significantly lower the um, the strength of that tooth. Mm-hmm. So if we could preserve it, it is it yep. is nicer. I think it just I don't get the information I need from doing mm-hmm. that. So at the mm-hmm. moment, I am I am in, enlarging those ones so that I can probe and and check. If the crack mm-hmm. is very small, um, then I don't. So if I've opened an okay. access and the crack is very hairline it's not got any staining coming through it you know sometimes Mm -hmm. you see cracks and um you can just see that there is a crack there but it's not got any black staining or anything like that for those i won't bother because i'm Mm -hmm. thinking you know it's fairly minor anyway um the only time i do sort of check like open them is when i worry that that tooth has become necrotic due to the crack um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if we look at most teeth that we treat, you know, if we take out an amalgam, quite often we see minor crack lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those I will never chase. But if it's a tooth that's, you know, become necrotic or pulpitic because of the crack, that's yep. when I want to investigate them a bit further. Okay, brilliant. Well, the, the only thing that left a question with me now, based on what you said, was... Uh, I, I'm trying to think of my references now. I think it's either Rayentrope 1985 or Aquilano 2002, I think, or 1998. I'm trying to think which year it was. But the whole thing about cuspal coverage after uh, endodontics and how um, the loss of marginal ridge significantly weakens the tooth. Now, in those situations, typically in the absence of cracked tooth, if you've got, for example, occlusal caries in a molar, and that has led to, let's say, uh, irreversible papitis or a necrotic tooth because the marginal ridges around the entire 360 degrees of tooth is preserved for me in my book that it can often get away without a cuspal coverage restoration uh, just a well bonded composite can do the trick whereas if if you have endodontics and a marginal ridge involved um then i for, for me my default is an onlay or uh, you know a crown if necessary um but if you have a scenario where you sort of describe whereby you might have a cracked tooth with irreversible pitis but there is no previous restoration there's no involvement of a marginal ridge see because it's a cracked tooth i would still be inclined to put a cuspal coverage restoration on it yeah, 100%. I think if there is a crack in a tooth, that tooth definitely needs cuspal coverage, restor- uh, cuspal coverage restoration because, um, I mean, teeth, when you've had endodontic treatment, they become weaker for a variety of reasons. Um, one, like you mentioned, is the um, loss of, of tooth structure. 
Um, and there's a great study by Rare et al, um, which shows that if the marginal ridge is removed, it reduces the strength of that tooth by about 63%, um, whereas for a small occlusal access, it's about 5%. Occlusal access doesn't contribute loads as long as we've kept it fairly minimal. Um, but there's other reasons why the tooth becomes uh, problematic. One um, is proprioception. Um, mm. So, you know, there's pluses or minuses. Is there proprioception in the pulp? Isn't there proprioception in the pulp? But there have been studies that have been done. Um, uh, uh, it's Rando and Glantz, actually. Yeah. So there's a really good study called um, by Rando and Glantz. Um, what they did was they um, put uh, force on non-vital teeth and vital teeth, and they found that non-vital teeth took at least two times more occlusal load than vital teeth. So that it shows that there probably is proprioceptive fibers in the pulp. Um, because non-vital teeth, you can put a lot more pressure on them um, without you knowing, you know. Are you sure you mean um, non-vital yeah. or you mean vital? You, you, you can put more force in a... Yes, on yeah, you can. Teeth. Yeah, yeah, you can put... I see. So in the mouth, uh, when there's a non-vital tooth, it, it, it can take more force because there's no proprioception to warn it that there's this force. Okay, fine. Exactly, yeah. And actually, they had to abandon that study because they kept breaking the non-vital teeth. Hmm. Um, so that, there's obviously the medicaments and irrigations we use, so sodium hypochlorite, all of that um, causes problems with the dentine um, and, and can, can result in fractures. There's lots of reasons why endo itself weakens the tooth. Um, so that in itself means that a cuspal coverage restoration is, is a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In terms of if there is just a smooth, small occlusal access, sometimes I will still recommend a cuspal coverage restoration on those patients, depending mm -hmm. on um, if they're a parafunction patient or not. So mm -hmm. if that patient has parafunction, um, you know, all these factors with, with endo associated can, can cause problems in terms of um, how brittle the tooth is and all those sorts of things. So I will still sometimes in, in some cases recommend a cuspal coverage restoration even with a small occlusal access. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, yeah, if there's a crack, definitely, because we want to bring that tooth under compression rather than flexion. Um, mm -hmm. So the cuspal coverage restoration will mean that when we're biting on the tooth, it's under compression rather than the two cusps flexing apart and being under flexion. Awesome. Uh, well, I think that's a, quite a comprehensive, uh, I don't know, 40 minutes, whatever, we've been done on, on cracked teeth. Um, any, any, anything else that you want to tell uh, the listeners uh, about cracked teeth in terms of something that might think is relevant to them? Um, I mean, I think it's only when it came to the diagnosis part. Um, the other few tips are transillumination is very good. Um, staining um, can be very good. So using something like methylene blue, um, you can get dye that sometimes helps you identify cracks. Um, and sometimes if there's a large restoration in the tooth, we can't see cracks at all visually. So if you are very stuck on which tooth is causing the problem, you can just ask, you know, say to the patient, look, I, I'm not sure we can remove the restoration in, in the one that's more likely, see if I can see a crack. If not, maybe, you know, move on to, to another one. So those are just little tips on, on diagnosis mm -hmm. as well. The, the, the as a GDP, there's so many restorations I removed to reveal these nasty cracks. And at that point, you know, you pull out your camera, you take your photo out, you show the patient. It's all part of the consent process. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Krina, it's been an amazing time has flown by uh, speaking to you about cracks. And I think you've really given me some good definitive answers uh, of the questions I wanted. And I've learned a few things about assessing the, the width, the jiggling of the, the tooth sleuth. Uh, and also, I, I do agree with you, parafunctional patients, even if they've only got a sort of a small axis cavity, I am a bit more inclined towards cuspal coverage. Uh, so there's been loads of gems there. Uh, thank you so much, Krina. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more, how can we uh, sort of uh, follow you and find out which other education that you're involved with? I guess I, I post a lot of my cases. For anyone that's interested in endo, I post a lot of my cases on my Instagram, um, which mm -hmm. is at Queen Specialist Endodontics. Um, and I'm starting up an online endo course because I don't think there is very much out there. And I constantly get asked about, um, you know, from people different countries, even this country, because online learning is so important now, um, as with your podcast. You know, if, if you can learn from the comfort of your own home, it's very nice. So I'm trying to, I'm launching um, my own online, online endo course um, pretty soon. So, yeah watch that space <laughs> so thanks again for listening all the way to the end and uh, within a couple of weeks i imagine you can go on to dental tubules and answer the questions uh, and get your enhanced cpd for that gosh i hope by the time this episode's out that lockdown is finished we're sort of you know, recording in the midst of lockdown so i hope everyone is safe and well and their families are all good and we're gonna hit back into to practice with all guns blazing 
And as always, thank you so much for listening. If you like the content, please subscribe, like, and share with your dental colleagues. Uh, and please, of course, leave me a five-star rating on your podcast flat platform. That's how my podcast actually grows. So please, that's very important. I really appreciate it.